1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, as well as One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus, the Driven. And joining me, as usual, is ITK Principal David Lynch. David, I trust you are well. And um, welcome back after a couple of weeks break. an un- un- Unavoidable absence, but um, we're back online. We, we are, Giles. I'm looking
2: forward to, uh, to her conversation with a great guest who's uh, got a great new project just starting up
1: absolutely well the um anton rona is the ceo of asin australia um the subsidiary of a majority philippines owned company i think um anton Uh, thanks for joining the uh, energy insiders podcast thank you very
3: much for inviting me
1: well it's um very much prompted by the news of the week and um as far as i can tell it's probably the most important news of the week it's the opening of what will be the um, biggest solar farm in australia at least for a time being um the first stage of the 720 megawatt new england solar farm you almost completed stage one i think you've done about 300 megawatts you've got um, a bit of it online you're going through your various hold point testing at the moment, and um, you had quite a big sort of opening function up there to, near Urella in the New England region um, to celebrate the launch.
3: Yes, Giles, it was uh, absolutely fantastic. It was an exciting day. What we did was uh, we went through the commissioning um, uh, process and obviously the the celebration of that commissioning of the 400 megawatts which is stage one of New England solar farm. Um, As you're aware, we're going through different hold points, so we got up to 100 megawatts yesterday, and hopefully we'll get into more serious production over the next two to three months. And it is stage one out of two stages, which we have there, and we'll be looking to go to notice to proceed later this year for stage two, which is another 320 megawatts. Um, We have capacity for battery there and um, the long-term strategy is to build um, hundreds of megawatts over the long term of battery storage to sit alongside the substation and the solar plants. It's um, interesting,
1: you, your strategy at the moment at least is to go merchant with the New England solar farm. That's pretty, uh, it's, um, it, it strikes me as a bold move. We keep on hearing about how sort of solar is um, where well, it's been eating coal's lunch and now its own lunch has been eating eaten by rooftop solar. So I'm just wondering, um, so merchant energy just basically means you don't have a long-term contract and you take the spot prices on the wholesale market. I'm just wondering, is this just like a short-term strategy to take advantage of the fact that wholesale prices have been high in the last, say, um, year, year and a half, two years? Or is this like sort of part of a long-term
3: strategy to think, um, no, we can do it this way. It's, um, um, what, what, what's your thinking there? Giles, what a great question. I don't want to give away too much of the secret sauce, but at the end of the day, when we got to uh, notice to proceed, it was a year into a pandemic. And as you can probably guess, the offtakes that were offered to our business at that point in time were in that low 40s, high 30s number, which is incredibly low. We did think there was a larger opportunity to make higher value to the business by. Um, building the asset, getting through to COD, and then contracting later on. And what what we are seeing now is exactly that fruition. So our strategy isn't to be 100% merchant, it is more to build the projects on a merchant basis. And it actually deals with a lot of large EPC issues, delays in panels or delays in construction and not putting as much stress on the EPC providers if there is any stress in the timeline. And it allows us to go to COD and then provide comfort to the off-takers we're actually going to be producing when we say we're going to produce.
1: Mm. You, you mentioned about sort of um, some of the contracting issues and delays and things like that. You've been building this in the middle of the pandemic and you're about to make a decision later this year for the second stage. Give us an idea of what's actually happened in that time. Have you met big delays? Have you been hit by an increase in uh, material costs, particularly solar modules? And how is that changing your thinking when you're trying to analyse the second stage? Do you expect those costs to come down? Do you expect those supply bottlenecks to
3: ease? Um, Can you give us a bit of a state of the market there? Yeah, certainly. So when we got to uh, notice to proceed, which is financial close through uh, project finance, one of the things that happened was the price of panels went up by approximately 20 to 30%. If you remember that period where everyone was looking at low panel prices and got changed from one reason or another. But the other thing that impacted us was that just before we got to notice to proceed, we had four years of no rain at New England, and it's pretty much rained from the day we signed the notice to proceed. So there have been, a pro- there have been delays through construction process, through rain, um, and, and to be fair, we had some small delays in, in other matters. But at the end of the day, what we did do was work very closely with the EPC provider and also ensure that there was a reasonable discussion going on. Costs have are going up, and I think it would be silly if anyone didn't think that costs were going up. I'm not sure if you've tried to employ anyone lately, but uh, there is much higher um, pressure on the employment costs, which which is appropriate in this market. Um, steals cost more, foreign currency movements, interest rates are going up. So I guess at a bit of a sort of a, a rounding error, we see costs going up in, in sort of project costs of anywhere between 20 and 30% at the present. And that, that is just a matter of all sorts of things, whether it be cost per megawatt, whether it be um, foreign exchange issues, cost of labour, or, or just insurances too. I mean, insurance, if anyone's tried to get insurance in a solar project, you will understand my comments. It's much more than 20 or 30%.
2: And on just, just on that point, um, stage two there would be a brownfield project. So if it was a greenfield project, would you say cost would be, uh, EPC would be 20% higher? And then because it's a brownfield, I guess it's not as much as that. Could you just talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean... It's not
3: really brownfield without trying to be argumentative. It's it's actually, it's just got the transmission ready to go and the connection ready to go. So it is a brand new EPC contract and panels required. So it is going to be in the order of 20 to 30% higher. Um, look, it is a public knowledge that we got to notice to proceed late last year on Stopper, which is 400 megawatts AC. And that's a much larger cost base than what New England solar farm stage one was.
2: And I've also been interested, uh, one of the things looking through uh, ASIN's presentation was just how close over the years the solar dispatch-weighted price has been to the um, uh, time-weighted price. That is, solar hasn't really suffered much of a disadvantage in New South Wales. But it does seem to me that as rooftop solar, for instance, continues to compete, inevitably uh, utility solar uh price will probably fall away compared to 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 wind and uh and to the the time weighted price is is that something that you would agree with or 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 not
3: yeah i i do actually agree with that but i think it's to what extent that that does go down um if if i can just step back three years ago when we got to notice to proceed everyone was predicting solar to be zero in the middle of the day and, David, as you suggested very well, it's not got down anywhere near that level. I also see that a lot of homes are now putting in batteries, so there'll be a bit of t- uh, time-shifting of the energy. Um, and I, I think, at the end of the day, we, we, we understand your point very clearly, but we just don't think it's as big, uh, as big difference as many of the market participants have predicted in the past, especially in New South Wales. New South Wales is a very large market. It's very liquid, and they've got very good connection points. So our market isn't just delivering to New South Wales. It's obviously we're on the q i so we actually push energy up into Queensland too. So your points are correct. I'll also suggest that uh, a lot of participants in the marketplace misread the price of LGCs quite considerably. Um, I did. Market market forecasts, um, late... Uh, Two and a half years ago, we are saying they were zero today. Um, we had a firm belief that they were worth much more than that, and, we, we, and for different reasons than what it has been, we thought there would be a movement more towards carbon pricing, but what's obviously occurred is the sur- a voluntary surrender of renewable energy certificates. Which is different the price. So we're kind of right, but we got the reasoning wrong, which is good. <laughs> but um, it's, be, it's, better,
2: day... it's better to have the right answer, isn't it, really, in the end of the day, rather than uh, uh, being very clever but wrong. Um, yes. Uh, Anton, I, 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 if I summarize this part of the discussion, it seems like costs have gone up 20 to 30%, but prices, particularly when you add in the LGCs, uh, would probably still be uh, way ahead of where people thought they might be, so that essentially projects still stack up pretty well on an NPV basis and you can afford to build merchant uh, in the confidence that you're taking on the construction risk, uh, but you then have a much stronger negotiating position once the project's ready to go?
3: I I think that's a very good summary, David. I think it's it's also giving counterparties the confidence that they can sign an offtake of a asset that's actually going to produce. And this is a real important point that I would I would I would make uh, to you to your listeners is that it's not just the big three or four that' are sign, signing offtakes now. there are many other counterparties coming to the market and while they' are not as sophisticated, they are worried that they're actually going to sign something that's going to be built and operating. And I think, uh, as you summarise well, is your strength is much more considerable as you uh, get close to COD or in COD. And, so,
2: and I'll hand back to Giles in a second because there's lots of other stuff I still want to talk about. But uh, if I just talk about your other projects in New South Wales, uh, Stubbo, and I'm particularly interested in uh, Valley of the Winds, um, which I th- I think is just about in the Irana zone and, ha- um, you know, uh, what can you say about uh, Valley of the Winds, I guess? Will it go into the tender for Verana Zone? Uh, will, will it get going? Where, where's it up to?
3: Yeah, that, that that's a great question. So, um... Stubbo, uh, we also have Stubbo's 400 megawatts. We have uh, another stage of Stubbo for later on. We also have Burilwa, which is another uh, 400 megawatts with a very large battery, and also Valley of the Winds, which is up to a gigawatt of wind, all in that uh, Central West um, energy zone. We've been working in that zone for four and a half years, and we we were keen to see that uh, see the large transmission line Propagated uh, because we saw it closest to market to get large renewable energy into that Sydney market as easily as possible via that Waller substation. I think the interesting thing about that is uh, value of the winds. Where is it at? So we put in our development approval. We had submissions. Uh, we're responding to those submissions, and we would look to have that approved later later this year, all things being equal. Um, one of the one of the issues is that. Uh, that there are now lots of projects in that region. It's not just us. There's other competitors in that region. And uh, there are some concerns around transmission from some of the local farmers. And uh, we've been working closely with uh, the community to try and understand what our contribution is um, and how, how how some of those issues can be resolved in the long term. David?
2: Yeah, I'm handing back to Giles, but I just want to mention that as someone that uh, grew up in Armadale and uh, sent my daughters to Yooralla uh, Pony Camp, uh, how happy I think it makes me that this farm's going ahead and how I think it, the vibe I hear of how the local community are actually not that unhappy about it at all. But back to you giles
1: <laughs> i was just going to ask a sort of pointed question about the local member the, the i noticed that you had the state member um adam marshall there and the federal energy minister chris bone and isn't it wonderful to have federal energy ministers actually attend in the opening of wind and solar farms um have you had much discussion with barnaby at all
3: who <laughs> barnaby, oh, sorry <laughs> um, no um sorry uh, look no he's 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 not engaged with us at all or vice versa we've always invited via his office, but um, to be fair, both um, both Adam and uh, and the Federal Minister of Energy, Chris Bowen, have been supporters of renewable energy in the area, as long as it's done well. And I think one of the strengths we've really kept to is that we've been very strong with our First Nations groups and also our landholders, but also the community, and we have a large community grants pro- program going, and we developed that three years ago. So this is right in the middle of the pandemic so i think there was a lot of loyalty achieved by doing that incredibly early not having to tell us get get third parties to tell us what to do we actually were very proactive and had that done early on
1: mm. you've mentioned battery storage both in terms of New England and I think the Stubbo and I think on other projects as well, just what, 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 what's going to trigger battery storage? I mean, are you going to be relying on the New South Wales infrastructure roadmap and their tenders? Will you rely on those sort of capacity payments or some sort of underwriting? Is there a market yet for battery storage? Have we got all the sort of the signals right? Um, give us a way of how you assess that and how that over coming years and what, what policies or market
3: designs do we need to to actually get them to work this isn't probably an answer you really you, you probably want a clear answer there is no clear answer to getting battery projects up it's a combination of, of different tenders through the process through the storage process it's uh, signaling from the Aemo At the moment everyone's very aware that battery prices went up quite considerably over the last two years. Um, what type of batteries you're looking at. Um, is it a dollar per megawatt or is it a dollar per megawatt storage? It, it's it's all those things wrapped around. At the end of the day, the signalling isn't quite there, but we're getting a lot closer. Um, and, of course, it just doesn't add, obviously, the time shifting at so support services and the cleaning of the energy, which is vitally important for us to export the energy. So, um, not answering your question very well, we, 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 we're sort of always... Um, very keen on the battery projects, but the the real challenge we have is making sure that they're highly economic and it's just the signals aren't quite there yet.
1: I'm just wondering um, what about just the whole connections process, because there's been a lot of sort of discussions about, you know, can you connect a battery to an existing wind and solar project? Can you co-develop them? What are the restraints and restrictions on actually sort of tying them into the same connection point and things like that? Are you getting better clarity over that process?
3: I would love to say yes.
1: It sounds like you're not going to.
3: <laughs> so it's, it, look, I, I think um, this is a complex matter and I, do, I don't envy I email or the TNSPs of trying to deal through a lot of, lot of items. Um, I was at the large-scale solar forum recently and one of the challenges is they have just so many connection inquiries. The problem with so many connection inquiries, are they all real? Do they have to, they have to treat everyone equally? Um and a lot of it are driven from uh from projects that or, or demand that may or may not be there. So so that's a challenge and I guess I'm just trying to say I have a bit of empathy to both AEMO and the TNSPs and um there is a lot to go under the bridge on this issue, Giles?
2: I I, I think REZs are supposed to make that process better, at least if the New South Wales model ends up uh, becoming a a good model where a lot of the work is done within the REZ. Uh,
3: That's Uh. absolutely correct. Um, But at the end of the day, we're still going to see that um, formalised, for lack of better words, David. I don't disagree. The the industry is cautious. Yeah, and look, I I mean... no, no, you go. Uh, look, look, d- just to be clear, it is uh, the New South Wales government's doing a great job trying to clean up a lot of these constraints. But at the end of the day, there is still, it's still the red zones still need to talk back to the grid and there will be impacts. And we just need to be very aware of it. The devil is always in the details when it comes to, uh, to anything to do with the batteries, integrating with solar, uh, wind or any other technology.
2: I just wanted to for um shift the uh, horizon out a little bit from New South Wales which does fascinate me and to look at uh ASIN more broadly and before I get into it could you just tell me the ownership of is Ayala is obviously the majority owner but I think ACEN's separately listed on the Philippine Stock Exchange and therefore has some uh other shareholders is that correct
3: yeah, so uh, very good question. So ASIN is listed on the Philippine Stock Exchange. Uh, the Ayala owns more than fifty uh, percent, and the GIC, which is the, uh, is part Singapore. of the Singapore um, Investment Thesis uh, Sovereign Fund. Uh, I think fifteen to twenty percent. So uh, I think um, trade is about twenty to twenty-five percent on the marketplace, um, and very strong governance. The uh, ASIN often wins ESG awards through for the region, for Southeast Asia and Asia, um, and the AR, the group, has now been going over for 185 years, so very stable um, group that relies on strong governance, good business practices. ASIN has investments in Vietnam, India, Indonesia, Australia, and the Philippines, obviously. We have a okay. target of 20 oh. giga, Twenty, Sorry, you go.
2: No, 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 no. A, t- a target of 20 gigawatts and I think four gigawatts more or less uh, and, and increasing. And and just on that, I guess I wanted to argue, ask about the um, s- supply chain because um, there's been a discussion of, we've already mentioned people. I just personally think you'll, as the industry grows, the more people will become available automatically like in any other industry. I know that's not a great uh, answer, but that's the way I think of it. Uh, but in terms of the overall supply chain, in terms of getting solar panels, inverters, uh, wind turbines particular, particular, uh, do you see that Australia will be able to get what it needs when it needs them?
3: Uh, that is probably the thing that keeps me awake at night the most is the ability for us to uh, source solar panels uh, if there's any economic or country disturbance in the region. Um, just as an interesting fact, ninety-seven percent of all ingots and wafering is done in China. So, if uh, if anything happens, then we we do have an issue. And I know talking to uh, federal and state ministers, this is their concern about us reaching reaching our decarbonisation targets in Australia. So, manufacturing is a key concern. I, I think the wind turbine um, supply. Um, chain is actually quite complex, uh, as but solar may be a bit simpler. I I am I'm not sure if inverters adds a lot of value because they seem to be sites that you can do that is replicable. Um, but I do I am significantly concerned about the solar panel um, supply chain, and and we've been working with um, counterparties to to make sure that we mitigate that risk. But it's still a risk out there. Probably the other thing, David, is that obviously with uh, energy constraints happening around the world is getting good wind turbines from Europe may be harder because they want to install a lot of wind. Um, So we are now battling on the global stage. We now have the IRA, which is effectively providing free energy because they're getting paid $60 a megawatt to supply wind energy in Texas. So we're really competing hard and... We're going to have to pay over the odds for this uh, for these components. Uh,
2: It does seem to me that uh, we are going to have to pay and and there is a global race on. Uh, That said, costs went up a lot in the last couple of years, but as the pandemic uh, uh, issues recede and China gets back into full manufacturing and at at the end, while it's a worry about China's solar panels at the moment, I suppose they're still pretty readily available. I'm wondering typically costs might start to come down again and the learning rate might start to reassert itself. Do you see any early signs of that or are you hopeful of that or how are you thinking about it?
3: I'm incredibly hopeful. We're seeing small signs of it, but we also have to be cautious in the way we approach it in real. Um, I, I, I think that's probably the best way I can really work work those, um, say what you're suggesting. Um, We are seeing small signs that the costs are going down from the panel perspective, but when it comes to other components of a solar plant, for example, the costs are going up. So on balance, it is what it is.
2: And I'll hand back to Giles again, but I also just wanted to ask about transmission. We've talked about the connection process, but it all depends on having enough transmission in enough places. How are you thinking about the transmission? I mean, as you look forward to the general speaking, not, not so much about ASIN at the moment, but just the general process of uh, decarbonising Australia's electricity system, what do you see as the main things that, that we as a country need to focus on? I, I think
3: we are challenging ourselves by not being a little bit more proactive on the transmission side. And I have to say rewiring the nation is an incredibly good start. I've seen that there's been agreements with Tasmania for Marinus. There's agreements in WA for, I think, uh, for, for new connections soon. There's been agreements with Queensland also for the, um, I call it the super freeway of transmission. This is the rule constraint. The big issue we're going to have in front of us is dealing with the communities. And I think one of the challenges I would suggest is to anyone that's dealing with transmission is don't send consultants out to do your community work. Make sure your own company participates in it because a lot of the consultants don't have the answers. Uh, They can provide the technical expertise, but this is the real challenge of if we're going to get transmission approved Big transmission approved so we can decarbonise Australia. Everyone's got to be in it. And some of the feedback we're getting is is quite extraordinary. So we we as a community need to all step up.
2: I heard from our social licence seminar that the Australian Institute of Energy ran with some local landowners down in the snow area that... uh, you know, the stupidest thing you can do is uh, plan three or four different routes and then invite every landowner in the area to have an opinion. You more or less (laughs) unite the whole state. I guess the way to do it is to work out where you're going to go and work out who your key landowners are and, 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 and then have a chat with them.
3: Yeah, but in saying that, you also, if you just pick one route, then everyone says you're going to give us a... You've already decided you're not going to listen to us. So you kind of can't win through that process, unfortunately, David. Uh, but I don't disagree with your comments. I do think there's going to be a point where there will be some eggs broken to make an omelette, and I think the key challenge is let's make sure it's not 50 eggs, let's just make sure it's one egg, Um, because at the end of the day, not everyone's going to be satisfied, but we do have to listen very carefully to the community about what we're doing.
1: One of your most challenging projects is also one of your biggest. It's the um, gigawatt scale project and on Robins Island and Jim's Plain. And um, it's um, elicited sort of fierce opposition from a number of different parties, including the former Greens leaders, uh, Bob Brown and Christine Milne, um, some local opposition, I imagine. And you've had sort of restrictions put on the output of that farm to sort of deal with migratory birds and things like that. I, I know that you're now in a court case, so you probably can't say too much about that. But um, were you sort of, Taken aback by the response to this, or is this just something that every project of this size is going to have to um, then have to deal with?
3: I think I think your comment is correct. Every project of this size will have to deal with deal with these type of issues. Um, look it. It's not migratory birds that are the issue. To be very clear, that has been uh, that that isn't correct. The, the EPA approval was constrained on the orange-bellied parrot migratory period, and that we have to shut down wind turbines for five months of each year. Um, so it wasn't migratory birds, um, and it is a vocal minority group, and one or two other participants, as you've suggested. Look, at, at the end of the day, we're confident we can demonstrate this condition is not what is needed uh, to the OPB conditions and we've got other conditions that adequately address the ongoing management of the wind farm. And I think at the end of the day, you know, some of the feedback is it's not the right place for a wind farm. Our feedback is that our science and our business believe it is. Um, so I, I, think, I think we are going to see more of these type of appeals from different operators for large projects around Australia and I'm starting to see it not just in our project but our other projects around the place too.
1: Mm. I mean, you mentioned before about, you know, what one piece of advice you had for developers was not to send consultants in first and do it yourself. I'm, I'm not too sure whether that's referring yep. to your, your experience with Robins Island. I mean, was that a mistake that you made there or is that a mistake that you see? No,
3: there? no. So, so we've been in consultation process. We've had over 36 uh, community consultation processes. Uh, we've interviewed more than 500 people one-on-one in an area that's got 4,000 people. We're very satisfied with our community consultation, and we've taken a lot of feedback on. Absolutely, I mean, if I can give you a good example, um, we 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 got some feedback that we were designing one of the key parameters wrong, and we we adjusted it very quickly. So I think I think from the community consultation process, we have been very diligent, uh, especially on Robins Island. I will say. Sometimes you just can't make everyone happy and we've got to take that on board too. We've got to listen to them, but you just can't make everyone happy.
1: Yeah. You've got a bunch of um, different projects actually in Tasmania. That's not the only one. You've got another sort of um, almost as big in the northeast of Tasmania, which is kind of the other side of the top of the island if you're kind of looking at a map. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and and these projects, though, are very much dependent on the Marinus Link going forward, aren't they? I mean, because without
3: without that, it just don't happen. Well, well it's, it's actually an interesting question. We're able to put in 540 megawatts, we believe, without mariners. So um, Jim's Plains and Robbins Island are likely to go ahead uh, with up to 540 megawatts. So we don't need mariners to kick in. Um, but the other thing is that there are a lot of demand uh, being re- requested for in Tasmania. So whether you believe in the hydrogen strategy, but there are other groups looking at gas to liquid plants. There is there is quite a lot of new demand coming on in the, in Tasmania, and that's about sort of a, a bit of a kick along with the growth of the of the state itself. Um, there is a lot of demand going on there, and whether it's uh, farm farms that are growing, processing on on Ireland, a lot of demand going on. So. It's not just about Marinus coming on. Now, to be fair, we we believe that Marinus will come on. There's been federal government and state government uh, funding to push this forward, which is exciting. Um, Timing is obviously an issue. We're trying to get it right, which is good, and connecting in close to Burnie is going to be pretty important for most of the developers. It's not just us looking to develop wind farms in, in Tasmania. Um, I will also just add one uh, extra point is if the condition on the OP uh, orange-bellied parrots act- is actually given to us, other wind farms around Tasmania will be significantly constrained also, even ones that are working. So this isn't just for us, this is for other projects too. Sorry, I digress.
1: No, it's just worth getting back to that though too, because I mean, this is obviously key. I mean, it's not just, as you said, there the are other major projects happening sort of close to wilderness areas um, national parks I can think of a couple in the north of Queensland and and, and and other places so it's 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 a balancing act isn't it I mean presumably that there is some impact I mean how I mean maybe this is the, the subject of your sort of court um, you know um, presentations I mean you know just the uh, getting the balance right and you're starting to hear people now sort of saying look we want wind and solar
3: but we just want them in the right places. And if not in the right places, then we don't Yeah. And, uh, you're right, but the de- determination of what the right place isn't usually without science or it's a perception of where they think they'd like things built to. So some of these arguments can be convoluted and influenced by their own perceptions of where they are too. So you're right, it's all about balance. Um, as I said before, it's it's a bit like transmission. Sometimes we need to make sure that we're trying to do the right thing and do it as well as possible, not everyone's going to be happy with everything you do in life.
2: I just wanted to come back to the regional picture a little uh, as we get to get on. Uh, uh, The capacity factors that ASEN reported overall seem quite low for both solar and wind uh, out of Asia compared to what what we can get in Australia. And I know your background includes the time, I think, as CEO of uh, Roaring Forties, which had plenty of previous experience in Tasmania and and also uh, India and China. Uh, I mean, how do you think of Australia relative to Asia as a place to invest uh, in renewable energy generally?
3: Yeah. So um, just to be clear, I wasn't the CEO, but thank you. I would have loved to have had the appointment. Um, uh, Compared to Asia, our capacity factors for solar can be anywhere in the order of 15 to 20 percent more. energy, so we, we, we're looking sort of in the order of NCF around 30% for New England solar. Some, some of the Asian projects are 15 to 20%. Um, from a wind perspective, the wind can actually be very attractive in Asia, but much more seasonal from a sort of a, uh, the typhoon period versus not the typhoon period in Asia. If you look at something like uh, Robins Island in Tasmania, it is in the order of fifty percent of the time the the uh, capacity factors, which is a big difference from thirty five percent that you might get in 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 Victoria. So you're getting obviously a much higher kick up, fifty percent more energy. But importantly, if you if you had built what you built at Robins Island, there'd be some production ninety four percent of the time, and it's that. It's, and that's really saying between 3 metres and 25 metres a second, 93% of the time the wind is actually operating uh, to a wind turbine specification that allows it to produce energy. And that's pretty extraordinary when you look at places like Tasmania or Australia. And the places we're looking in New South Wales ha- have, have those sort of high 30s, low 40s type of numbers. Depends on the turbine, depends on what we get approved, the hub heights, all those things.
2: Yeah, and that's what I noticed, that the best places for wind are, in fact, in North Queensland and in uh, in onshore and in Tasmania, and that the uh, capacity factors there are actually quite comparable to offshore wind and arguably a far lower cost to develop other than for the social license issues. And then the solar in Queensland, where I notice you don't have very much, has also got uh, fantastic... uh, uh, year-round capacity factors, and this reduces cost to consumers because you don't have the same amount of firming uh, that's required, but you do have tr- yeah. transmission issues.
3: Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in your comment that the offshore doesn't have social licence uh, issues. Um, I, no, I think no, 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 uh, offshore. A of a well, <laughs> yeah, a, a bit of a red herring because I think, I think um, just because you don't see what happens offshore doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So, I think there'll be some challenges in the marketplace. Um, the capacity factors we see in in Tasmania will be equivalent if not better than uh, than some of the offshore projects that are being proposed around Australia.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, at least the transmission for offshore is uh, <laughs> under surface, if I can put it that way, hopefully.
3: Yes, great. Yep, that's correct. And I I, I think when we look at comparable costs that have been delivered into the UK or something like that, the transmission is usually paid for. So uh, the cost expectations for Australia on, I'll call it, sort of uh, projects that are onshore versus offshore, I I think that will be something that will start to flush out very quickly.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that. Well, I I actually, Anthony, uh, uh, just want to congratulate you. I don't have a whole lot more questions uh, right now. I just uh, look forward to watching the uh, uh, progress of OSIN in Australia and in Asia and uh, wish you all the best. And thanks very much, uh, from my perspective, uh, for talking to us here at Energy Insiders. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much, David
1: thank you very much um, that was anton rona the ceo of um australia um, that's the end of part one of our podcast this week we'll be back in a moment with part two And we're back with part two of the Energy Insiders podcast, just a brief summary of the week's events. Um, David, uh, New England will be the biggest solar farm, at least for a while, on the main grid when, if it gets that second stage built. But of course, pales into significance with Sun cable, which will be 20 gigawatts, uh, 20 or more, probably 30 times bigger. Um, but interesting that um, Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks might not have it their own way. Um, When it comes down to the tender, one suspects that it will be one of those two. But obviously, um, the idea of a um, a mostly permitted and and prepared 20 gigawatt uh, site for solar might be of interest to other parties.
2: Well, yes, but it is in the middle of nowhere without uh, transmission and no load anywhere near it. But for all the talking that Forrest isn't that interested, he's uh, gone around and as the Financial Review uh, interestingly pointed out and bought up all the creditors. Uh, uh, so that sh- if if it ends up being a creditors' vote that decides who gets it, he, he of course uh, is in strong position. So I think Forrest is far more interested in that project uh, than he's actually led on, and uh, probably much more interested. Never wanted it to go to Singapore, and that that's why we are where we are.
1: Indeed, indeed. Look, one of the other big things that happened this week was the Gas Statement of Opportunities, the GSU, uh, um, issued by Australian Energy Market Operator. What do you make of that, David? I mean, I was a bit sort of confused by what they were trying to say. Um, as people point out, we don't actually have a shortage of gas in Australia. We just choose mostly to export it. And I guess that's sort of constrained by the state of contracts. Um, AEMO's worried about some potential supply issues, in coming years particularly in the middle of winter and uh, amplified they say by um, increased electrification although one wonders whether that would really be the case and i guess some people are also a bit sort of dismayed by the fact that it doesn't seem to be a call to for quicker electrification just a call to make more gas available but i guess a here is piggy in the middle
2: yeah i think all of, I agree with just about everything you said. Um, uh, AEMO is pig, piggy in the middle. It has a statutory duty to do its gas statement of opportunities. Uh, it could, of course, add on a bit about how uh, uh, faster electrification of uh, gas that's used for heat processing uh, would, would reduce the demand for gas. And there's quite a lot of opportunities. I, I always talk about uh, um, um, brick kilns and bakeries and stuff like that. And, you know, for me... The higher the gas price is, the more they're encouraged to electrify those things, uh, the, the faster we can uh, decarbonise the electricity system and decarbonise Australia overall. Uh, uh, gas de- demand is forecast to decline. Uh, gas, we need power for gas, as, as we've all known, uh, until we get something like hydrogen or, uh, um, for that last 10%, but we don't actually need more uh, gas for gas generation. Uh, probably even less as we go forward. I guess the share of the market hasn't really increased. Uh, generation market. So um, uh, on on we go. It's it's um, I to some extent agree with what uh, Tim Buckley uh, said that there's a very powerful gas lobby in Australia, uh, and they're forever uh, pushing their barrow. Can't blame them for doing that. It's up to us to uh,
1: pick through it. And of course, um, one of the consequences of being this dependence on, um, on, on on coal and gas, particularly over the last couple of years, has been the high prices we've been paying, um, particularly in the wholesale markets. That's now sweeping through to the retail markets with the um, with the default market offer, um, a bit of like a set piece thing. Um, David, when, I mean, are consumers being dealt a fair deal here? I mean, are we, uh, is, you know, is, is, is the extra price of generation wholesale market really going to continue into the next year for that long? And when can we expect, because I keep on getting asked this question, when can we expect prices to finally fall? And I guess the Labor government would be <laughs> interested in this answer because they've promised so much. But the idea is when solar and storage are the cheapest, when will that, that actually be delivered? On the market
2: when we build the wind and solar uh, at the moment uh, the price is, is in new south wales say is sitting up around a hundred dollars wholesale price spot price uh time weighted average for the next three years or so more or less uh it's drifted off a fraction in the other states and remains a lot lower in victoria where there is excess generation for the time being so the price is just a function of supply and demand Uh, And it's uh, also a function of the supply and demand at particular times of the day. And we just don't have enough wind and solar and we don't have enough firming in particular, like in the form of pumped hydro or batteries to actually force the coal generation prices down uh, and the gas generation prices down and what snowy charges down in, in the evening peaks. Uh, And and we need to build a lot more wind to start doing that. And at the same time, we have about eight uh, NEM-wide gas-fired power stations from memory, Um, a bit more than eight, uh, but every one of those represents about 5% of the market, give or take, and every time one closes, like Araring or, or the other stations in New South Wales, Um, uh, then it puts a lot of pressure until we get the new supply. So at the moment, we're in this phase of trying to build new supply uh, as fast as uh, existing supply. Thermal is, is reducing, falling out of the market. And, you know, we've slowed down. We haven't had that many approvals for new projects this year. We're running into the transmission bottleneck that everyone understands and keeps getting talked about a lot. Uh, So, I think the outlook is reasonably problematic uh, for the next uh, couple of years with not much change expected, but uh, household residential consumers and even uh, small business and even large business can still do a lot by putting in more and more behind the meter. The one thing that uh, high prices unambiguously does is to signal more behind the meter stuff, uh, which remains very, very attractive. Uh, and I expect to see this sector continuing to grow and um, uh, helping, helping consumers. I mean, I myself have taken the bite on the capital expenditure. You can argue whether it's uh, NPV poss- uh, positive or not, uh, but you know, it's more, much more so with uh, household prices having gone up 50% over two years, and I'm you know, running my car, the house, the, the, the swimming pool, uh, seven people, the air conditioning for a combined 10 to $20 a month. I mean, what's not to like about that?
1: What, indeed. Um, it'd just be nice if that sort of thing was available to sort of more vulnerable households. people who Yes, agreed. And that stuff like that. And I think it's probably more effort needs to go into that. Look, just one final thing to wrap up before we finish the podcast. Um, one was the Fully Charged event in um, Sydney last weekend. Um, biggest TV show in the world. Came to Australia for the first time. Just short of 15,000 um, visitors. Really quite interesting just sort of seeing... That interest um, in EVs, um, and um, we're just seeing the amount of um, the EV share of the uh, new car market in Australia get up towards six or seven percent, which is starting to get to the levels now where you know there's enough around neighbours and um, not enough charging stations. Not enough charging stations, not quite right, but um, anyway, I just think that was a really interesting thing to sort of point out just the level of interest and, um, and we're starting to see some more um, lower cost um, EVs coming to Australia. I wouldn't say it's sort of cheap, but sort of lower cost in the 40s and um, some smaller vehicles, so that is a good thing. I think that's a bit of a wrap for this week, David. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen